This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My name is Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Christy is a nationally board certified English teacher, as well as an advanced placement language teacher, an international baccalaureate literature teacher, and she's also an AP reader for the national exam. And Gary is an AP IB psychology and history teacher, guitar player, as well as my husband. This week, we're jumping into another great classic and tackling Act One of Raisin in the Sun. Last week, in our introduction, we jumped back into the 1950s and we really got into the details of Hansberry's life, her involvement and impact in regards to the civil rights movement, especially as it worked to change social and cultural norms in the area of the arts. Today, we're branching out in a totally different direction because, as we said last week, this play is not just a period piece about the American civil rights movement. Uh, No, it's definitely much larger than any one historical moment, and it speaks to larger issues of oppression, conflict, and perhaps most basically to the simple struggle to climb up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In this play, every single person is at a different place and needs different things. They're competing for common resources and absolutely talking past each other at every point. So, to start us off, give us the plot summary, and then let's walk through how it all plays out. That was a pun. Uh, And not a good one. (laughs) Um, Act one is divided into two scenes. In the first scene, we meet all the characters around the morning breakfast table. There's tension in the air in the expectation that an insurance check of $10,000 will be arriving in the mail the next day because of the untimely death of Walter Sr., We learn that everyone has a different idea about what should happen to the check, but ultimately it's made out to Mama. Now, I want to point out the genius of this play. Uh, Once again, the plot is simple, but the characters are very complex. And of the books we've done so far, these characters have the most subtlety and the most nuance, I feel. Anyway, Christy, are you going to take us line by line through the first sentences of the play like you usually do in novels? Yes, actually, it's a worthwhile thing to do, even in plays. And even though the first paragraphs of the play are not dialogue or something that an audience person would hear, 
Uh, in fact, only the director or anyone reading the directions would read that. We, she absolutely takes the time to tell her whole entire story and the subtext of these directions to the director. So if it opens up, we see in the directions that it says this. The younger living room would be a comfortable and well-ordered room if it were not for a number of indestructible contradictions to the state of being. All right. Just to begin with, the play, this entire play, all three acts are going to be set in this same room. And it's described as having indestructible contradictions. So what we're going to see is the physical space itself is expressing the conflict that she sees that's occurring in the family and African-American culture and in the lives of every one of these individuals. So we see that its furnishings are typical and undistinguished, just like the characters in the play they're going to be. And this room has had to accommodate, this living room has had to accommodate too many people for too many years, and they are tired. The people are tired. The room is tired. The furnishings of the room were actually selected with care, love, and even hope. And there you go. There's the three words that are going to symbolize the optimism of this play. This play is about humans caring for humans, family caring for family. It's about love, and it's mostly about hope. And brought to this apartment and arranged with taste and pride. And that first paragraph ends with that interesting word pride, which is kind of a a double-edged sword. And of course, the whole thing is about pride. But what is pride? What's pride to you, Gary? Well, pride's a very interesting topic. Uh, In this context... And if you want to get psychological about it, pride is about dignity. It's about people having a sense of self-worth to themselves, the things that people will do to preserve dignity. That's how pride is being exercised here, I feel like. And I really feel like that uh, comes out in the expression, and have that in mind when we when we look at the character of Walter Jr., who's the man, really the man who's at the center of the play. Uh, it's easy to judge him. He's going to do some things that are probably not wise. The way he talks to the women in his life would get him slapped if he tried to do that in 2019. But he's an expression of this man who's trying at, against all odds to find his dignity. And I think pride, besides having the side of dignity, has this other side of the coin, ego. How do, you have to control it and keep it in check, and it's hard to manage. I think we see it as being hard to manage in this particular, how do you maintain your dignity without letting your ego get the best of you? And on that note, I want to sidebar for just a moment here. Langston Hughes in the poem, the very beginning of the book for which this book is built around, he said, what happens to a dream deferred? I feel like the whole opening scene is what happens to a dream deferred weariness, fatigue, exhaustion, so it's at least been answered once. Yes, that's true. We haven't even started the play yet. Yeah. It was a long time ago. Now the once loved pattern on the couch upholstered has to fight to show itself from under acres of crocheted doilies. So we see this idea of fighting. They're fighting. They don't want the dream to be deferred any longer. And you see the crocheted doilies, which is everyone's expression uh, of, you know, this of love and, and then in a grandma kind of sense. I don't think grandmas do this anymore, but when my grandma, you know, the, they crocheted and they always gave you doilies and it took so long to make. And, you know, whatever they're worth, if they're not worth anything, they're an expression 
of love and they have them all here trying trying to hide the 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 weariness of the room and it says the room is fighting back the carpet's fighting back by showing its weariness with depressing uniformity it says weariness has in fact won in this room and of course uh it ends the description of the room with a little window which is at the very end well, it's over the, I guess, the kitchen area. And it says the sole natural light the family may enjoy in the course of a day is only that which fights, again, its way through this little window. And of course, light is an archetype of hope. And it's fighting its way through a teeny tiny window into this room. And it's in that spirit that the, you know, the door comes up and out busts Ruth. And it's time to start the day. It's Friday morning. Ruth is 30 years old, uh, and she also has had, it says, has disappointment in her face. She's a beautiful woman. It says she's a beautiful woman, but the beauty is kind of taken a backseat to the dreariness of having to do all that she has to do. And the first thing she's doing is she's waking everybody up uh, because the first struggle that they have is the fight for the bathroom. Because the family across the hall and them share the same bathroom. And they all have to get ready and out the door. So she's waking her kid up, running them out of the room. Go, 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 go. Go get in the bathroom. This kind of thing. And so you start off with this tension already in the room. And then Walter comes in. And Walter's the man. Walter's the husband of Ruth. Yes. And the first thing he wants to know is the check coming today. And, of course, she he knows it isn't. And then they have this really funny conversation that kind of plays out about these eggs and it's super passive aggressive so ruth uh asks him what kind of eggs you want and he's gonna say not scrambled and so what does she do she scrambles his (laughs) eggs yes because he doesn't have a choice what are you gonna do not eat them and so they have this discussion and he gets back at her and uh uh in a passive aggressive way and he goes you look young this morning baby and she goes yeah and he goes Ah, it's gone. You look like yourself again. (laughs) Anyway, to start off a compliment with, you look young this morning, as compared to all other mornings. And then it went away. And of course, Travis enters the room, and we see a second struggle because he wants some money. Which is super interesting because it's a true parent moment for anybody who's raised kids. Travis wants 50 cents. Mom says, I don't have the 50 cents. Travis pleads his case for why he needs his 50 cents. Mom says, we don't have it. Dad walks in, sees how distraught the son is. He pulls 50 cents out of his pocket, gives it to him, gives him even more money and says, go take a cab, treat yourself to some fruit. And it's a deliberate uh uh, up in your face uh, moment towards towards the wife. Yeah, he's undermining her. He's undermining her. He's triangulating the child. Uh, the child, of course, is grateful. Jumps up and hugs him. He gets all the glory. You know, and how many parents have had a situation where one parent has had to discipline while the other parent was the good cop? And that's what I mean about Walter wanting. You know, he, it's embarrassing that he's a man of this household and his kid's going to go to school and he's going to take a beating from his teacher because he's the only kid in the class who didn't bring the money that he was supposed to bring. And he doesn't want that for his kid. So it's mean and it's undermining. But at the same time, you can see where he's what, what's happening. Right. And one thing I want to point out is that we've got Ruth being described as weary. We have Walter already searching for dignity. 
these characters immediately come into the story. All the pretenses have vanished. You're going to see raw people stripped of whatever their best face was. These are the raw people. And what we're going to do is we're going to take the raw dreams and desires of these people and we're going to throw the bait of money into the middle of all their disappointed lives and then let them go after it like gladiators. Well, and that's exactly what we have here. He jumps in and he goes, uh, I want I want to buy a liquor store. Willie Harris and Bobo have been here. We've been talking about this liquor store. It's going to cost $30,000, $10,000 a piece. Uh, and, and, and Ruth isn't really good with this. And so then we have this really interesting, right after he brings up his um, liquor store, we have, I think, a really interesting conversation back to the eggs and i want us to read it out because it's it's more than what we think it means so ruth is gonna say uh he says we need to have some money for bribes uh, and she says you mean graft he goes don't call it that see there goes to show you what women understand about the world uh baby don't nothing happen for you unless you pay somebody off and walter's gonna say walter leave me alone eat your eggs they're gonna be cold so now we're going to have an egg discussion. So Walter says, that's it. There you are. Man say to his woman, I got me a dream. This woman say, eat your eggs. Man say, I got to take hold of this here world, baby. And a woman will say, eat your eggs and go to work. Man say, I got to change my life. I'm choking to death, baby. And his woman say, your eggs is getting cold. Walter, that ain't none of our money. This morning, I was looking in the mirror and thinking about it. I'm 35 years old. I've been married 11 years, and I got a boy who sleeps in the living room. And all I got to give him is stories about how rich white people live. Eat your eggs, Walter. Damn my eggs. Damn all the eggs that ever was. Then go to work. I'm trying to talk to you about myself, and all you can say is eat them eggs and go to work. And so you get the impression, at least you should get the impression, that we're not talking about eggs. We're talking about the liquor store because the eggs is his little dream and it's going to, and it's, he wants to hatch it like an egg would hatch. But the wife says, eat it. Don't dream it. Don't let it hatch. Eat your eggs. And of course he reacts to that. And she says again, eat it. And of course, then you get this hyperbolic inflammatory cussing language damn my eggs and then she says go to work i'm done talking about this and of course it shuts it down and he knows uh that uh that this is over that that she's not supporting him on this and with that said said we introduce another woman into the room benitha now if you remember yesterday we ta- or not yesterday last week we talked about how benitha is most closely associated with Hansberry's actual personality. And that's by Hansberry's own confession. Yeah, she said that. So she comes in. She's 20 years old. It says she's not as pretty as Ruth, but she is intellectual, lean, and handsome in her own right. She's wearing bright red. Uh, And her speech, it, it makes a point to say, her speech is a mixture of many things. It's different from the rest of the family because she's educated and she's lost her southern draw. And I know we haven't really lost our southern draw. <laughs> but she has. And because southern draws tend to, not in this case, but sometimes they're, they're used to express a people that are perhaps less educated. And she's kind of stomping that out with a rather Midwestern um, speech patterns. And, of course, 
all of her southern solicisms, air and grammar, they're all they're all gone. They're not talking. She's not talking the way like like everybody else talks. So she's going to come in and then she's also fussing. She's got to get ready. She's tired. And of course they have this banter between she and her brother uh and and we find out that he's mad at her because she also is a threat to him getting in this liquor store. And I want to ask this question. Benita is a very unusual name. As a matter of fact, according to the United States Census, only about five people per year are born with the name Benita. So what is the story behind using the name Benita? I really don't know. I, I've i never thought about that. Uh, I don't know if it's trying to say... You're beneath her. <laughs> That's the impression I get. She's using the term, the, the name to kind of portray the idea that everybody is beneath her, that there is an arrogance to her. Well, and in a lot of ways, they really are. I mean, she's clearly the most educated. She's the most ambitious person in this family. I mean, how is she going to college? She's 15 years younger than her brother, and he didn't go to college. So there's a drive in her uh, that you don't see in, in, other, in other characters, and you don't even see in... Every person in the world. I mean, she wants to be a doctor, and that's what he's mad about. As a woman in the 1950s. That's super aggressive. Oh, that would be ambitious for any person. Uh, even today, the doc, being doctors, that's an extremely competitive field. And this is in an era where women weren't getting educated. Black women were very rarely educated. And here she is going to, she's going to, you know, her dream is the most ambitious of them all. And, of course, he finds it insulting. Yeah. Because, you know, he I hate to say this, but he's a bit of a chauvinist. That's going to come out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. We have a lot of male bashing to do before we're done. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Walter uh, is going to look at his wife and his sister, and he's going to say the world's most backward race of people, and that's a fact. And he's talking about them because nobody cares about his dream. So if they don't care about his dream, they must be backwards. And then in comes Mama. She's a woman in her 60s, full-bodied and strong. She, of course, is the matriarch of this family. It describes her as being strong several times in the description. She's a beautiful woman. Her bearing is perhaps most like the noble bearings of the woman of the heroes of Southwest Africa, Rather as if she imagines that she walks, she still bears a basket or a vessel upon her head. Her speech, on the other hand, is as careless as her carriage is precise. She is inclined to slur everything, but her voice is perhaps not so much quiet as simply soft. So you see a a personal strength, but she's uneducated. She's a product very much of her environment, which her environment, 1890s, was when she was born. And I want to speak to that for just a moment to kind of put a little historical uh, slant on the character of Mama. So this book is published, I mean, this play is published in 1959, and Mama's roughly 60 years old at the point of this play. So let's put it in easy terms. Let's say Mama's roughly born in 1900. Mama has probably been part of the great black migration out of the South. She's ended in Chicago. She has lived through World War One. She has lived through the 1920s, the wealthiest decade in U.S. history up to this point. She's lived through the Great Depression, which is the most poverty-stricken decade in U.S. history. She has lived through World War II. She's lived through the introduction of communism, even, and the whole idea of the Cold War. 
I mean, how much more can you cram into one person's life? That window from 1900 to 1960 is one of the most amazing uh, issue-packed half-centuries in the history of the United States. Well, and Hansberry is going to cleverly embody everything that you said in this way. Mama is going to cross the room, go to the window, open it, and bring in a feeble little plant growing doggedly in a small pot on the windowsill. She feels the dirt and puts it back out. This plant is the most obvious symbol in the whole book. It represents her, and it represents everything you just said. She has been living and struggling, and she's just this, but she's but she's there, and she's going to say, "My children and they tempest." Lord, if this little old plant don't get more sun than it's been getting and ain't never going to see spring again. So she's just fighting, 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 never really sure that the next spring is going to come, but she never, never gives up. And so we're going to see this plant come back and it's going to, and then it's her. Everything that you just said is right there in this plant. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to elaborate upon that point is because Benita is not of that generation and their intergenerational conflict is very central to the story of the book and we're going to see them bring in all kind of philosophical differences in the worldviews of these two women and uh it's it's the same generational conflict every parent and child has i also want to point out there's another triangle that occurs this time between mama ruth and travis and uh, Mama meddles in Ruth's parenting, and it becomes a point of contention. Of course, Travis always benefits. Every time the adults have a conflict, Travis benefits. But this is such a grandmother-mother-grandchild triangle that occurs right here. It is kind of cute, and it's not—it's um, annoying, but it's not, you know, one of the deep truths of the play. It's just reality. It's, it's what so many people have lived. Oh, yeah. So Ruth's trying to get Travis to make his bed, and Mama doesn't want to make him do it, and she babies him, and Travis knows that this is going on, and he just pretends that he doesn't. So, it's I mean, it's cute. But anyway, they start talking about the money, Ruth and Mama do, and Mama reveals to Ruth what she wants to do with the money. So Ruth basically comes out and says, what are you going to do with the money? And she says, well, I have, I, she says it like this, I ain't rightly decided. Some of it got to be put away for Benita and her schooling and ain't nothing going to touch that part of it. Nothing. But then she wants to buy a house. She, and she, in this dream gets Ruth really excited. She goes, buy a little two-story somewhere with a yard where Travis could play in the summertime if we could use part of the insurance for down payment and everybody kind of pitch in, I think I might could take on a little bit of day work. And she loves it. She loves it. She goes, Lord, uh, we got to get out of this rat trap. Uh, and they're talking about where they lived. And she remembers the days that they moved in and they weren't planning on living there very long. And they, she's lived there her whole, her whole marriage. And she said, all the dreams I had about buying that house and fixing it up and making me a little garden in the back and didn't none of it happen. And of course, Ruth is going to say something very interesting uh, in response to Mama's next comment. We find out that um, she lost a baby. 
She goes, Big Walter would come in there some nights and he'd look at the rug and look back at me uh, after being at work. And then she says, and then I lost that baby, little Claude. I almost thought I was going to lose Big Walter too. Oh, that man grieved himself. He was one man to love his children. And then Ruth says this, ain't nothing can tear you like losing your baby. And that is going to have some deep meaning. It sure does. All right, so we talk about um, Walter Sr., how he was a good man. Not perfect, but a good man. Benita comes in. She goes on and on about learning the guitar, all these little hobbies that she's done. She's joined a horseback riding club. And you can see that you know, she's way up on Maslow's Triangle. <laughs> she is. Yeah, and that's a great point to make. Uh, Mama and the daughter are existing at very different levels on Maslow's hierarchy. Yes. Mama's trying to survive. She doesn't know if she's going to make it from spring to spring. Ruth is trying to connect with her husband, and she's raising a child. And Benita has to start her guitar lessons today. <laughs> and when asked, why do you want to play guitar? Her answer is to express myself. And they look at each other like she's the craziest thing in the whole wide world. Yeah. And to them, she is. And she introduces all these little love interests. She's dating this little rich boy, George Merchinson. And he's one of the rich, which we're, we're going to meet him. She describes him as honest to God, real, live, rich, color folk. And the only people in the world who are more snobbish than rich white people are rich colored people. I thought everybody knew that. I've met Mrs. Merchinson. She's a scene. So Benita's in another world. <laughs> she is. <laughs> yeah, so and so Mama and Ruth kind of come in uh, and talk about her just a little bit. And then Mama and Benita get in this really interesting argument about God. Um, Mama's going to say something about um, you're going to be a doctor, God willing. And Beneath is going to say, God hasn't got a thing to do with it. And you see that Mama, and we're going to see this up the whole play, is a very, very religious woman. She has a deep faith. She clearly prays. She attends church. She gives money. And Beneath has been to college. And when you go to college, you, you learn lots of things. And one of the things that you learned is that God is just one idea, and he's one idea Benita doesn't accept. And she tells her mama that. She goes, there simply is no blasted God. There is only man, and it is he who makes miracles. Where is she getting these ideas? Uh, well, if I may digress for a moment, I can't tell you the total number of children we've instructed over the years, but we've seen more than our fair share go to college take their first philosophy class, and then come back and know everything. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. They, they've learned it all. They have learned it all. It's amazing. Apparently, they were repressed in their learning until they got to a university and they could take a class their sophomore year. Um, anyway, you know, we're making fun, but the bottom line is Benita is individuating from her mother. She is moving out into her own sense of who she is in the world. And she's looking for ideas, and it's very common for children to individuate through their philosophy of how the world works. And this is also daring, daring a parent's most deeply held tenet is a form of individuation. It's a form of asserting independence. You know, when you were two years old or three years old, you had the terrible twos. Now you're 20. What you're going to do is you're going to take on your parent's most sacred view. And that's what she does. And Mama will have none of it. And Mama says... 
you say after me, in my mother's house, there is still God. And then she slap, she slaps her. And it shames Benita. She can't believe her mama would slap her across the face. That's where dignity is. And her mama says, repeat it. In my mother's house, there is still God. And Benita does. She says, in my mother's house. I can only imagine. An actress <laughs> can really have fun with this line. In my mother's house, there is still God. It really sarcastically, so to speak. Well, one of the reasons why I spent a little bit of time a few minutes ago talking about Mama's life from 1900 to 1959 is because that is a clear philosophical dividing line in the world. Benita is growing up completely in the postmodern age. The postmodern writers emerge after World War I. Postmodern philosophy takes shape during the interwar period and especially after post-World War II. And, and postmodernism is marked by its skepticism and its cynicalism and its the idea of moral relativism. And so we have Mama, who is from the uh, pre-postmodern age, which would have been called the modern age. Anyway, she's from that generation. And we have this huge philosophical divide, not just generational, but the world literally changed at this time period. And I think that's one of the brilliances of Hansberry is that she brings that out. Yeah, you have Benita going to school every day and reading people like Nietzsche, who's saying God is dead, and Camus is saying life is meaningless, you're just matter, you don't, nothing that you do has any significance in the world. And these are not things that Benita had ever heard in Sunday school, and she knows her mama doesn't believe on the, any, in any of this stuff, and she doesn't understand why, Mama, you made me respect your views, why can't you respect mine? That's kind of how Benita is looking at it. But Mama just sees it as, where's the respect? Right. And Mama has a quote one time. She says, there's something come down between me and them that don't let us understand each other. And I don't know what it is. How many parents have thought that? One done almost lost his mind thinking about money all the time. And the other done commenced to talk about things I can't seem to understand in no form or fashion. What is it that's changing and, the, and it is, the world's changing, and she's going to go look at her plant. She's going to sprinkle some water on it, and then she's going to say, like this little old plant that ain't never had enough sunshine or nothing, just look at it. And, of course, uh, Ruth is going to fuss at Benita, and she's going to say, you acted like a child, Benita. You think you're mature because you went to college. You think you know something. But you're not. You're a little girl. And when you act like a little girl, you get slapped, which I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. At the end of the scene one, we see Mama going back to this idea about wanting the house. And she's going on and on. And all of a sudden, bloop, Ruth passes out. She's on the floor. Oh, what a great dramatic way to end a scene. Yes. All right. And then we're going to see, of course, we don't know why she's on the floor but we're going to find out in just a minute scene two is the next morning saturday morning 24 hours have passed and we don't have to race to the bathroom nobody's going to work but instead we have a march of roaches they're all over the house it's it's awful they're trying to clean and i think it's important to to point out how much they clean because to me that's the mark of a family with dignity you can be poor and you can have dignity. And I think that expresses itself in how you clean. I've been into many poor homes all over the world. Well, I grew up, as you know, in Brazil. 
And there are many, many poor women that I know that had a, had a dirt floor and they swept it out because even though it's dirt, I'm dignified and I'm not living like an animal. And Hansbury goes to, to great extremes and at every point to show this is a family of great dignity and their dignity does not come from their money. It comes from their worth as human beings. Right. And their dignity is expressed by pushing back against the chaos of the environment. Yes, very much so. And it's called the chaos is like marching out of there like Napoleon. So these are the... Talking about, these are some bold roaches. I know. And I, and I grew up with a house that had lots of roaches. So I know how that feels. I remember one time I jumped on a ping pong table and broke it because of roaches. So that they can be foul. And, and, and you see that. And Travis, of course, doesn't take it seriously. And he thinks it's fun. He's going to go outside and chase down the roaches uh, while they have all this uh, interesting dialogue. So Mama... So, uh, Travis leaves. Benita gets a phone call. It's this guy named Asagai. Mm-hmm. New character. Yes. Uh, I do think I need to point out, uh, before we get too far into this, maybe a way of an editorial disclaimer, maybe by way of an apology. But there is no doubt that this play was written by a woman. And men, for the most part, you will be taking a beating. <laughs> it interestingly kind of reflects the love hate relationship men and women have always enjoyed all over the world. And I want to be careful and not violate the arrogance of the present. And I don't want to make this about a modern day lynching of men, which is really in vogue uh, these days, because this is not a political podcast and we're not making any kind of commentary on the political scene of our day. Furthermore, I love men, just so you know, and I've always loved men. I have two brothers. I adore my father, and I have a magnificent husband. So just so you know, darling, although this play tends to highlight how men can be kind of chauvinistic pigs and dismissive of women, I want to make it perfectly clear that she is not suggesting that all men, especially present company included, I think. And I also want to point out that not even all men in Hansberry life where the chauvinist pig, we're going to, pigs, there's a collection of them, we're going <laughs> to meet, meet in this play. Two of the men that she cared about the most, her father and her ex-husband. And I know when I say ex-husband, that kind of connotes a falling out of sorts. But I don't think theirs uh, really was that kind of divorce. Because even after their divorce, These men were very, very close to her heart. So keep that in mind, darling, as you take your beating. It's all meant to be taken in sport. And I will say, if there's anything that women love more than making sport out of men, I really don't know what it is. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, don't think I have not noticed the beatings that go on in the story. And I'm glad you brought up that this is not a political podcast because we do want to be careful and not draw current political trends or even motives to works of art that far outdate not just their current political moment, but ours as well. Now, having said that, I would like to point out that even in her male bashing, and she does take aim at every male in this play except little Travis, she ends the play with the redemption of Walter, which is nice, and makes a very assertive and important statement on what it means to be a man. Um, In other words, Hansberry does not emasculate men, as many are trying to do, 
But in essence, she's using her influence to confess what women want in a man. So if you look at it that way, it could even be taken perhaps maybe even in a flattering light. Well, and I do say that I agree with Hansberry's description of what manliness is when we get to the play. So um, go, Hansberry, and go, men, but learn, not you, but, you know, oh, okay, learn. What, this, is what, hmm. this is what women want. So let's talk about Asagai. He's got a lot uh, going for him. In some ways, he's an intellectual, and he's, he's very sexy in that regard. He's an African. He's been studying in Canada. So this is everything that would be immediately attractive to Benita. Oh, and, of course, if you watch the plays, he has an accent. What is it with you women and accents? Huh? It is true. No one can deny that. So anyway, um, she's preparing her mama, and she goes, Mama, don't, don't talk to him like he's some ignorant African, or don't pretend like you're ignorant. And she goes, he's sophisticated. And his mama says, I've never met no African before. And Benita's going to say, don't. Now, do me a favor and don't ask him a whole lot of ignorant questions about Africans. I mean, do they wear clothes and all that? Now, I happen to know that you have had personal experience with this kind of question. Uh, when you left Brazil and came to the United States for college, you had people enrolled in college literally ask you while living in Brazil, did you wear clothes? Well, they asked me, actually, they asked me if it was uncomfortable to be wearing clothes now that oh, I that I had okay. come to the United States. Yes, that, that was a real question. And they asked me if uh, what my hut number was, because they assumed I had a hut number to get my mail. So Americans, I'm sorry, it is a stereotype, but we are so geographically ignorant and it's embarrassing. And I hate to say that, but we're working on it. We're working on it. Okay. But yeah. So this is what Benita thinks, too. And she's like, Mama, just don't say anything. Don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass me. And she gives her some tips about um, uh, what they're, they're going to be talking about. And she says, Mama says, well, we give money to church for missionary work. Well, Benita says that. And Benita says, you, you want to save them from heathenism. And Benita's going to say, they need more salvation from the British and the French. Which, of course, is one more theme. Hansberry just slips in there. She's making comments on the importance of uh, the pushing back of colonialism. And that's what Asagai kind of comes to represent. Right. And the pushing back of the colonialism is another extension of the postmodernism. Uh, it, it's an attempt to indict Western civilization. So uh, right before Asagai gets in here, and, and she and he are going to have kind of an interesting discussion Ruth is going to come back, and she'd been to the doctor, and uh, the mama asks her, so is everything fine? And Ruth calls the doctor, yes, she says everything is going to be fine. This, of course, is a clue to mama that she didn't go to the regular OBGYN. And, of course, Benita starts crying. She says, I'm all right. The glassy-eyed look melts, and she's going to collapse into a fit. Did you mean Ruth? Yes, what did okay. I say? You said beneath her. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Ruth is going to start crying, uh, and she's upset. So right when she starts crying, Asagai shows up. We push um, Ruth out of the way. She leaves stage uh, with, with Mama, and we get this really cute conversation between Asagai and Benita. He's brought her some gifts uh, from Africa, and he's going to tease her about her hair. And he calls it mutilated because uh, 
African-American girls in the United States, they do it now too. Uh, they're always, you know, fixing their hair up. They're straightening it, putting braids in it, putting weaves in it. There's just so many different things uh, that you can do to your hair. And it's kind of a fashion statement and there's trends. And of course, everybody... And it's American. Yeah, it's American. And Asagai, of course, calls this a mutilation. And he's playfully teasing her about it. And we get this um, really under the surface conversation about what it means to be an assimilationist. And he says, you're an assimilationist, and I am not assimilationist. And this idea is you're subjecting yourself to the to the majority culture. And she's like, no, I'm not. And he goes, well, look at your hair. And, of course, that gives way uh, to a greater conversation about their relationship. And this is where his chauvinism comes through. And he goes, we have a lot to talk about uh, uh, we need time. And she, and he goes, uh, Benita says we need time. And he goes, well, how much time does one need to know how one feels? And Asagai says between a man and a woman, there need to be only one kind of feeling. And I have that for you right now, right at this moment. And Benita doesn't want that. She says, I know. And by itself, it won't do. I can find that anywhere. And he goes for a woman, it should be enough. And that's when every woman in the audience wants to slap him. <laughs> yes. And she goes on to say, I'm not interested in being someone's little episode in America. And then he says this. It's just that every American girl has ever, ever said that to me. White, black, in this you are all the same. And the same speech, too. So in other words, this guy's going around telling this to all the girls. Well, and he's also saying... Uh, it's how you can be sure the world's most liberated women are not liberated at all. You all talk about it too much. Putting the old Shakespeare spin on it. Me does think they'll protest too much. Uh, because he's basically saying uh, ambition is no, has no place in a woman. You should, you should want me. That should be the, that's the end of your ambition. I don't know what else you want in this world. And she's not as offended as she should be, but she certainly blows him off. Well, there's a reason why she's not as offended. And it, it's it's back when Asagai talks about when they first met. And she said, I want very much to talk with you about Africa. You see, Mr. Asagai, I'm looking for my identity. So in her search for her African identity, she's letting this guy get away with that. Well, and there is a theme that runs through all African-American literature, especially during this period. And it's a, it's an honest question and only an African-American can really answer it. You have this mix of heritage. You have your African heritage and that is its own rich culture. It has a different religion. It has different tribes and that's a part of you, but you're also from places like Mississippi and Alabama and that's an entirely different culture that's developed independently of any of this other stuff that he's a part of. And she doesn't want to, you know, how do you combine those two things? And that's a question that African-American is going to answer in a different way. And, of course, she's trying to sort that out. And I think that's what she means. I'm trying to find my identity. Who am I in all of this? And as a result, she's restless in her character, restless in her spirit. And Asagai, or Asagai, sorry, refers to her, he gives her a nickname, and the nickname denotes that restlessness. The nickname is one for whom bread or food is not enough. And, of course, that charms her. I know. I don't like him. But it does charm her. And she goes, oh, that's so sweet. And he gives her these presents, and those are charming, too. So there you go. 
and then of course um, we come on uh, Travis comes in because the check has arrived the moment the moment and of course I can't even imagine uh, what that would feel like they get this ten thousand dollars they've never seen that amount of money at, in their whole lives she's Ruth gets it and she goes it's a piece of paper worth ten thousand dollars Lord have mercy and of course Walt Travis goes open it grandma grandmama and they do um, and they open it and then um, we have kind of a, a quiet space as they kind of reminisce you know what that money represents it represents Everybody's dream, and they're all standing there looking at this dream. <laughs> but somebody had to die for that to be mm-hmm. to be a thing, and so there's an element of um, melancholy there. And Mama's going to say, uh, "I expect if it wasn't for you all, I would just put that money away or give it to the church or something." And Ruth's going to say, "Now, what kind of talk is that? Mister Younger would be plain mad if he could hear you talking foolish like that." And Mama says, "Yes, he would. He got enough to do with that money, all right." Um, and then she redirects, and this is kind of where the, the play ends, the conversation back to Ruth. And she says, Ruth, you know better than that. Old Dr. Jones is strange enough in his ways, but there ain't nothing about him makes somebody slip and call him she like you done this morning. And, of course, um, it's going to come out that Walt, that Ruth didn't go to the doctor. Instead, she went to an abortion clinic and paid $5 uh, as a down payment to terminate her pregnancy. And of course, this is shocking. But before any of this has to come out, Walter is going to come in and he uh, wants the money. So Mama wants to redirect the conversation away from the money. And she says, I think you ought to talk to your wife. I'll go out and leave you alone if you want to. And Walter's going to say, I can talk to her later, Mama. Mama's going to say, son. And he's going to say, well, somebody please listen to me today. And Mama's going to shut him down. And he says, but Mama, you ain't even looked at it. And he wants her to look at his plan for this liquor store. And um, let's just read this back back and forth. Okay. Walter's going to say. I'll read Walter. Okay. You ain't looked at it, and you just don't aim to have to speak on that again. You ain't even looked at it, and you have decided. Well, you tell that to my boy tonight when you put him to sleep on the living room couch. Yeah, tell it to my wife, Mama, tomorrow when she has to go out of here to look after somebody else's kids. And tell it to me, Mama, every time we need a new pair of curtains and I have to watch you go out and work in somebody's kitchen. Yeah, tell me then. Ruth's going to say, where are you going? I'm going out. Where? Just out of this house somewhere. I'll come too. I don't want you to come. I got something to talk to you about, Walter. That's too bad. Mama's going to say, Walter Lee, sit down. I'm a grown man, Mama. Ain't nobody said you wasn't grown, but you still in my house in my presence. And as long as you are, you talk to your wife civil. Now sit down. And then, of course, Ruth's going to say, oh, let him go on out and drink himself to death. He makes me sick to my stomach. And you turned mine too, baby. That was my biggest mistake. And this is just so horrible. I mean, it is. And it, it, they, the, the, and you see the degradation of their circumstances taking a toll. And now they're speaking to each other in the most degrading of all ways. And of course, it ends 
with this discussion about what life is. And it's really interesting in the fact that you know the whole time Ruth has life in her stomach. And this is meant to, the reader is supposed to know or the, the audience is supposed to know that this is about life. Everyone's life is involved here. And Walter's going to say, Mama's going to say, Son, how come, how come you talk so much about money? And Walter's going to give her an answer. And he's going to say, Because it's life, Mama. And Mama's going to say, so now it's life. Money is life. Once upon a time, freedom used to be life. Now it's money. I guess the world really do change. And Walter is going to say, It was always money, Mama. We just didn't know about it. What do you think that means? I mean, that's a very cryptic phrase. It was always money, Mama. Does that mean their condition before really was being manipulated because of money and they just weren't aware? Well, you know, again, he's generationally different from his mother. Uh, To his mother, freedom was everything. So he's got that. He's built up. He's moved up the ladder. And now he's simplifying life down to money. And mom is saying, you can't simplify life down to money. She's going to say, no, something has changed. You something new, boy. In my time, we was worried about not being lynched and getting to the north if we could and how to stay alive and still have a pinch of dignity, too. Now here come you and beneath it, talking about things we ain't never thought about, hardly me and your daddy. You ain't satisfied or proud of nothing we done. And see, his degradation of, of where they've came is, is in a personal affront to well, her. Well, it is, because she put a lot of effort into raising these children and Everything. surviving. Yeah. I mean, you had a home that we kept you out of trouble till you was grown, that you don't have to ride to work on the back of nobody's streetcar. You my children. But how different we done become. And of course, Walter doesn't understand. He's going to say, Mama, you don't understand. And the mom's going to say, do you know your wife is expecting another baby? And that's what she wanted to talk to you about. This ain't for me to be telling, but you ought to know. I think Ruth is thinking about getting rid of that child. And of course, Mama's going to say, when the world gets ugly enough, a woman will do anything for him, her family, the part that's already living and Hansberry very controversially ends with the most controversial problem of her day, and maybe even to this day, this idea of new life. And, and Mama and Benita are going to be clearly at opposite extremes of this argument because they're looking at it from the, the abortion issue of the abortion issue. You have Mama, who's a very religious woman. She's clearly pro-life. This is our family. This is. A child, God created this child, he's put us in this life, and it's our duty by God to protect it. Well, Benita's not going to take that approach at all, and you're going to see it uh, when she's introduced to the baby that she's a little bit more flippant about it. It's a nuisance. It's who's going to feed it. This is where's our it problem. Gonna, where's it going to stay? On the roof is her, her line. She has the postmodern reaction, which is basically when they get in the abortion discussion, it's not a life, and it's the mother's right to make a choice with what to do with it. And it is the mother's right, uh, and it is the mother's, I mean, no matter how you feel about this issue, it's clearly the mother's decision. She's got to decide what she wants to do. And Ruth isn't looking at it from either perspective. She's not looking at it from the the moralistic side uh, or the sacred sanctity of life, that moral argument, and she's not looking at it from the pragmatic side of the materialist materialism and uh, of Benita, 
she cares about her family. She cares about the future. And she knows that that life is going to fundamentally change everything about the way they live. And she doesn't know if her her marriage can sustain a baby. Can they afford a baby financially? Can they fit another baby in the house? So she's looking at it from a very pragmatic perspective. And her dream is wrapped up in her family. She married Walter. She she loves her family. She loves her child. She's invested her entire life into building this unit. And to kill that baby is, in a sense, it's killing her dream. And that baby, in a very symbolic way, is what this whole play is about. Everything is at the verge of being aborted. Mama's life, Walter's dream, Benita, Ruth, it's all there. And it's at the edge of a giant you know, metaphorical abortion, so so to speak, and that's what's being expressed at this final moment. Right, and everything's under threat, and the genius of Hansberry at this point is that she puts three women in the same room with three different perspectives on a controversial issue. And Mama's going to chase Walter out the door, and she says, if you son of, if, if you a son of mine, tell her. Because she wants Walter to tell beneath to tell Ruth not to abort the baby, and he won't. And Mama takes the deepest dig and the deepest cut at her son that she can come up with, and she says, "You are a disgrace to your father's memory." That cuts deep with the son. Somebody get my hat, and she walks out too. A lot going on there. Pretty that powerful is stuff. Tense. I would like to point out that's just Act One, <laughs> Scene One, Scene Two. There's more to go. And we never even left the breakfast table. <laughs> oh my gosh! Wow. Okay. Well, thanks for coming along with us today on this ride. We're going to pick up next time, uh, introducing Act Two. If you've enjoyed being with us today, please hit subscribe and follow along and check out our Facebook page check out Instagram any form of social media communicate with us let us know what you think talk about what we might need to add what we might have missed anyway we'd like to hear from you peace out Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.